Well, let us turn in God's Word to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through verse 32. We are taking up the passage this morning under the title, The Fall of the West, seeking to give some understanding of uh, the way things are in the Western world right now and how things have changed so very quickly in the course of our lifetimes, and uh, seeking to be both challenged and encouraged by the way in which the Holy Spirit has inspired the Apostle Paul here to speak of these things, but also to give us hints as to how we may respond as the Christians that are called to live in this time and place. I remember hearing quite often as a young boy, such a sentiment as this, that God has not called Charles Haddon Spurgeon to live today. God has not even called uh, more recent figures like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones to live in a day like ours. He's called you and me. And that means that the baton has fallen to us, and we are to prove faithful. We leave the success to God, but we are to be proven faithful in this brief life which we get to live for the glory of God. So let's hear the word of God. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The Lord bless this somber reading of his word. Let us pray. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear this message from Dr. Tim Trumper. We ask that you'll bless him as he gives us this message. Thank you for the scripture. It tells us that righteous shall live by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. The Fall of the West, Romans 1, 16 through 32. And I guess if there's a key text, it's found in verse 25. The theme of the sermon being about deception. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That is the creator, not the creature. Amen. It doesn't take a conspiracy theorist to know that we are living in a day of great deception. And we are realizing more and more, and perhaps COVID has brought this to light, that we are being strung along by movers and shakers in our world. This is not new, but perhaps it's becoming clearer to sight with every passing day. The scales, though, are falling from our eyes. And this deception has been unfolding, developing since the 18th century. And it has been a double-barreled assault upon God and upon his revelation. The reason why I'm preaching this today is because this became very apparent in the vacation that Brenda and I have just completed, traveling out west. And seeing just how pervasive is the deception that confronts us and has been before us, we've taken it for granted for centuries now, since the late 18th century. Let me speak first of all about the secular deception, that having traveled through the Rocky Mountains and having uh, visited the National Monument in Colorado, we made our way gradually up towards Salt Lake City. And we passed through Bonanza, which even from a British perspective, I remember the cowboy series Bonanza. I thought, well, that's interesting. And then we came to Dinosaur. Well, you don't get names like that in Britain, little towns. So we came to Dinosaur, and we were just in time to visit the National Monument there, the Dinosaur Quarry. It's a quarry in which, in the last century, a whole pile of dinosaur bones was discovered, and uh, many of them were taken by Andrew Carnegie, I believe 35 tons of them, for his, his work. And then he says, we've got more than we can handle, and so they left this whole bank of dinosaur bones, and a building, a structure was built over it, so I'm sure that some of you have also been there. And as, of course, we uh, walked into the National uh, museum, the National Park there, we were interested to see what they'd say about the dinosaurs. And of course, it's so contrary to the scriptures. We expected that. But I want to read to you one of the signs, which clearly speaks of the deception which we are facing in our day. This is what the sign says. Where you stand today, an ancient river flowed swiftly across a vast plain. Then a long drought killed many dinosaurs. Some dinosaur bodies lay near and in the dry river channel. When extensive rains returned, floods drowned some dinosaurs and swept up carcasses of others that were already dead. The fast-flowing river carried the bones downstream along the river bottom. As flood waters receded, the river slowed. The bones dropped to the river bottom and began to pile up. They were covered with sand and mud. The reason was the dinosaur, the result was the dinosaur logjam that you see before you today. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that you don't see a whit of evidence for a long drought. But it's a better explanation, I guess, than saying that Earth was hit by an asteroid either in New Mexico or India, killing somehow the dinosaurs, and yet everything else goes on. It's much easier, isn't it, to believe the flood. This sign gets close to it. There was water, there was water. But it's so easier, isn't it, to go to the biblical record. And then we moved on from the town of Dinosaur, and uh, we made our way and got to Salt Lake City. And of course, you go to Salt Lake City, it's free entrance, so we went into the Temple Square. See the Mormon Temple. It's been shored up because it's built on a, on a fault line, and it's not open until 2024. And so... We went into the tabernacle, the assembly hall of the Mormons, and uh, it was built with the stone masonry left over from the temple. And I was very interested as a Welshman going in. And I walked in and I said, wow, I said to one of the uh, tour guides, this looks like a Welsh nonconformist chapel. She said, there's a reason for that. Because when Mormonism spread, it got to the United Kingdom, and despite it being a period of great revival in the United Kingdom, there were Scotsmen, there were Welshmen who came across to America, followed Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, across uh, America, and they committed themselves to it. So when it came to build the uh, temple, and certainly the tabernacle, they said, well, let's build it like a nonconformist chapel, wherein the revivals were happening. 
And then you pick up the literature, of course, the best foot is forward. And so it seems quite sane, apart from the fact that you're existent before you're born, just you don't remember it. And then we carried on our travels and we came to a place called Mountain View and we went to church there on the Sunday near Monument Valley. And there was a lady there who grew up in a Mormon, as a Mormon. She served in the temple. And she says, oh, she says, I discovered all the inconsistencies, you see. And I used to wait for the bishop to come to the office day by day and say, what about this? What about that? I said to her, I'm sure they were glad you left the Mormons after a while. She said, I think they were. You see, there's not only secular deception, there's religious deception. But the interesting thing is that both those deceptions were born in the modern era, going back to the 18th century. What happened then? Well, there came along the Enlightenment, and it says, well, we still believe in truth, but now we we review truth by our human reasoning, not by faith in a revealed record. And now, people date it back to the 20th century, modernity has passed, and now we're into post-modernity, which says there is no truth. It's just a social construct. You make up your own truth. The popular term for it is fake news. But you make up your own truth, and you stick to your own truth in your own tribal grouping, and that's truth for you. What an utter mess we're in. But this mess is not new. Because Paul here in Romans 1 speaks about how man gets into this mess, the downward spiral that he witnessed in his day and we get to witness in our day. And I want to pass through the phases whereby man has gone on this trajectory, a downward spiral, so that nothing makes sense. And even what's obvious is no longer regarded as true. Well, phase one, the privilege of truth, verses 16 through the first half of verse 18. Although pagan, Rome too had been privileged. We might not think of Rome as having been privileged with truth, but the New Testament tells us that Christ's coming had blessed the entire known world. We know that the gospel had reached Rome. In fact, Paul tells us in Philippians 4 verse 22, that there were those in Caesar's household who had embraced the truth. And so they knew the truth. They had the truth. They just didn't believe the truth. But the truth was based on a twofold revelation. The first part of the revelation is that God has revealed his righteousness. Whereas man seeks to approach him by his own righteousness, either in part or in whole, Paul discovered the great news that our righteousness has come to us in Christ, rather than something we pursue, we try and orchestrate so that we might approach and come to God. And it was this very discovery in the apostolic era, and then at the time of the Protestant Reformation, that the righteousness we need in order to approach God comes from God, rather than something we work up from beneath in order to get to God. It was that discovery which so emboldened the Apostle Paul throughout the eastern half of the Roman Empire, to go from place to place, sometimes beaten, sometimes left for dead, in order to bring the gospel of God's grace into a chaotic and a rebellious world. But there are people at Rome, because he's been so busy in the east of the empire, saying, well, you see, Paul, he's he's all very brave when he's out in the east. But he's a chicken because he won't come to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Three times in verses 8 to 15, Paul says, I yearn to come. I would have come. And I'm going to come. But this is the gospel that you need to know that I'm preaching so that when I do come, you can be enlisted because I'm heading to Spain and I need you to do what the church in Antioch has been doing, supporting the work of mission so that it can go forth. We need a base church in order to spread the gospel further afield. God revealed his righteousness. What was Paul saying? That God had broken into time and broken into the ideological and ethical mayhem of the day. And in Christ, God had revealed his character. In Christ, God punishes sin. In Christ, God grants us a perfection which alone enables us to stand before God in life and to stand before God in death. 
and to live as God would have us live. And this, Paul says, is the power or the dynamism that transforms the world. And if we aren't going to know a turnaround of this mayhem, then we need the same confidence in the gospel that it is the power or the dynamism of God not only to convert individuals, but to transform whole cultures because God is alive and God is able. God's moral law in succeeding centuries after Paul's experience at Rome or Paul's experience of the first century brought justice and order. God's grace in Christ brought liberty and eventually God's spirit brought a reformation and multiple revival. And it is then God's moral law, God's grace, God's spirit, which enabled then the church to leave its four walls, to take the gospel, first of all to Europe, or first of all to Africa if we go back to the first century, then to Europe, then to North America. Pastor Bob and Sandy are visiting some historic churches over these weeks away. And where do these churches date back to? They date back to God by his spirit doing a mighty work in Europe. They've been, is it not to Zurich? The stomping ground of Ulrich Zwingli and Heinrich Bullinger? And we can mention so many more. They had the privilege of truth. God had revealed his righteousness. But says Paul, verse 18a, God has revealed his wrath. On his second missionary journey, Paul had told the Athenians that the days of ignorance had passed. Acts 17.30. And prior to Christ, he adds, just a few chapters later in Romans, Romans 3.25, that God passed over former sins. But what he's saying is this, now that Christ has been given to the entire world, our claim to ignorance is a thing of the past. And so whereas God for long centuries passed over the sins of the nations, to a degree, now that Christ has come and we are called to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of our sins and turn to God, God now reveals not simply his righteousness in Jesus Christ, he reveals his wrath. But we need to understand that that's also a blessing. Why is it a blessing? Well, it's a blessing because through the revelation of the wrath of God, we are called back to God. And it's the fact that God is alive. It is the fact that God is gracious enough to tell you what pleases him and what displeases him that we ought to be grateful. So the wrath of God warns us to repent. For it has been drawn out from God by man's persistence, says Paul here, in ungodliness, which is the attempt to live without God, and in unrighteousness, the contradiction of God's will. And so his wrath is not God flying off the handle. His wrath is his settled reaction to sin, produced by his justice and his holiness. But this is precisely where the rot set in in the West. God revealed his righteousness, and God has revealed through his righteousness the benefits of coming to faith in Christ, not only for the believer, but for the world. What happened? Well, as Christianity spread, so the benefits of freedom, wealth, national supremacy spread. All cultures are not equal. And it was the gospel Even where it didn't save, it moralized, and it changed whole societies. But the problem was this, that man became complacent. The professing Christian became complacent, and he says, well, I don't necessarily want Christ, and I don't necessarily want the Christian church, but I want the benefits of freedom, I want the benefits of wealth, I want the benefits of national supremacy. And thus, those who are not Christian looked at Christianity and said, oh, it's just a shallow hypocrisy. They're just as bad as everyone else. And you only have to look at Hollywood to see the way in which Christianity is depicted. Have you noticed in a film or in a miniseries how if a minister comes up, he's probably the one who did the murder. He's probably the one living a double life. 
And so by camping out on the shallow hypocrisy of the professing Christian, man has his excuse for living the way he wants to live. And so phase two, verses 18, the second half through verse 23, the suppression of truth, having been privileged with the revelation of God's righteousness on the one hand, and even the revelation of God's wrath on the other, instead of turning back to God, what does man do? Well, man suppresses the truth. So although the Romans had, through the Christian community, access to gospel truth, man in his unrighteousness pushed back the truth or pushed under the truth. It's the idea of going to the beach in the summer and you have a ball and you try to push it under the water and keep it under the water. It's, not Im- it's impossible to do, ultimately, but we try. And so does man try in his rebellion. Oh, you see those Christians, they're hypocrites. So we, we look at all the things about the British Empire which were wrong, and we say, therefore, that's why I'm not a Christian. We look at all the things that the American powers have done, and we look for what's wrong, that's why I'm not a Christian. We don't look at the benefits. Does modern man, postmodern man, he looks at what went wrong. And so what do we do? We push the truth back. Natural man pushes the truth back to his subconscious, or he pushes it under. And what does this suppression reveal? Well, verses 18b through 20, it reveals that man has the truth. You cannot suppress the truth unless you've got the truth to begin with. And only although personified by God, truth is revealed through creation. And that revelation that we see of God, says Paul, is plain, verse 19. It's informative, verse 20, and it is abiding, verse 20. Notice what he says. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. We are given enough revelation from the things that are created to pique our interest so that the natural man, seeing plainly that God exists, seeing his power and glory, is enticed to go searching after God. But instead of searching after God, he says, that's too much information for me. What I'm going to do is hold it down. I'm going to press it back. I'm going to suppress the truth. But he has the truth. It was not then God who changed in the modern era, but man. Instead of worshipping God, man used the fresh ideas supremely of science as a foil to claim that God does not exist. And therefore, if God does not exist, we cannot be accountable to him. The second thing that the suppression revealed is that man hates the truth. Notice that when man suppresses the truth, he doesn't do it from a standpoint of moral neutrality. Paul says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. And then he goes on, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see, they knew of the one true living God, but opted not to honor him, not to give him thanks. It was a decision of the mind produced by a wayward heart. And so what happened All those centuries later in the modern era. Well, you see these new scientific ideas. and You see it's still pumped out. That what began as hypotheses, theories, are now promoted as facts. Because the theories are convenient. The fact of God's existence, seen plainly and informatively and abidingly through creation, is not convenient. And so we must get rid of the truth because man hates the truth. And yet, thirdly, we need the truth. The second half of verse 21 through verse 23. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Note the results of suppressing the truth. Man became futile in his thinking. Literally, his reasonings became fruitless. 
And so, as the natural man in Paul's day looked at Christianity, well, you see, they're atheists because they don't believe in the emperor. Well, you see, they're cannibals because they pick up this wine in, or this cup in communion and they thought it was poured with blood and Christians were drinking blood and so therefore they are cannibals. They became futile in their reasoning. What is more, their hearts were darkened. The further they moved from the light, the less light they had. And as they moved further from the light, which is the last thing they should have been doing, they became fools. Pretending to be wise, their folly became very apparent. And the more they suppressed the truth then, the more they went on to idolatry. Because God has created man a religious being, which means he must worship, he must serve some higher being. Even while he's trying to suppress the truth, hold it back. Once we've done that, trying to hold the ball underwater, what happens? The ball pops up. And how does it pop up? Either in a profession of atheism against the facts or in a profession of polytheism. And this is what we see today. The outworking of the suppression of the truth. So you sit in Chicago airport and you go to go to the restroom. And you see the sign on the side of the restroom, and there's three figures there. Evidently a man, evidently a woman, and then this figure with half a dress for transgender use. What does the Bible say? God made them male and female, and he saw what he created, and it was very good. But man says, no, we're suppressing the truth. We know the truth, but we're suppressing it. And so we're going to create this third category to indicate that gender is now a fluid thing. You can choose your own gender. It's a suppression of the truth. Here's another example of folly. Well, you see, we've got all these illegal aliens coming through the border, and I speak as a resident alien. And you try and get out into the country or out of the country through New York, and there are all these tight restrictions. But hey, just take a flight to... To Mexico, walk through the border, and if you're mistreated by the government, hey, you can get $450,000. And the families of the dead military get less. Utter, utter folly. It doesn't have to be a party political statement to make that. And so phase three, verses 24 to 27, the exchanging the truth. Man not only holds down or holds back the truth, he wants to get rid of it. Yet since, wrote the Roman historian Titus Livius, truth is often eclipsed but never extinguished, man seeks to exchange it. If I can't actually get rid of the truth and it keeps plaguing me, then what am I going to do? I'm going to substitute the truth, says Paul, for a lie. And the substitution, the exchanging, takes three forms. First of all, the exchange is ideological, verse 25. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. You see, what does the truth do? Well, the truth honors God. What does the lie do? The lie serves man. And although the truth can be self-evident, as in how many genders there are, nevertheless, man is committed to the lie. That was happening in Paul's day, and it's been happening increasingly over the last two centuries. You see the irony, the irrationality of the emphasis upon rationality? That by the forces of reason coming out of the Enlightenment at the end of the 18th century, they were saying, well, you see, we don't receive revelation by faith because we want evidence. We won't believe something unless we see the evidence for it. And now we're at a point of saying... Hey, there's just two genders. Who wants to strip off and see if there's a third? But the evidence is not convenient. And now we have ultrasounds that say, look, you can see the continuity between the life in the womb, the life outside the womb. Oh, that's not life. That's a fetus. That's not a baby. And then, oh, it's on the front headlines of the news. Wow, there may be life on Mars after all. You see what's happening? 
It's more convenient to believe the lie than to believe the truth. The truth serves God. The lie serves man. And then, secondly, with regard to the exchanging of the truth, the exchange is doxological. It's a matter of praise. Verse 25 again. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Along with the abandonment of the worship of God comes the abandonment of the service of God. So we no longer give our, our time to the church, to the cause of the gospel. We give our time to this cause, that cause that supports our tribal grouping. And when it comes to money, we no longer give our tithes to the church. We give our financial support to this tribal grouping, that tribal grouping, whatever tribal grouping we want to support. You see, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a poet called Thomas Hardy, and he wrote a poem called God's Funeral. And he envisions being at the funeral of God and how men and women said goodbye to God. And this is the way they reasoned it. They said, what we had imagined, we believed. So we imagined there was a God and therefore we believed in him. But the futility of our own day is this. Now we believe what we imagine. And so we put our affections upon some uh, pop star. And they become the meaning of our life. We put some affection upon a sports star. And they become the whole purpose and rationale for our living. Do you realize that the soccer player Cristiano Ronaldo has 500 million followers on social media? And now he's come back to the team that made him famous, Manchester United, there in England. There was a time, it may still be the time, that Manchester United was worth two and a half times the New York Yankees. And you go and you watch a soccer match then. I've been there with my nephews. And on the one end is this sign, Manchester United, the religion. And I feel obliged to tell my nephew, when he's much younger, you know, Peter, that that's not true. Yes, Uncle Tim, that's not true. I hope he believes that. But you see, it's doxological, this exchange. And so if you go to a soccer match today in the English Premiership, or maybe in your own stadiums, you have the replication of a church service. You have the masses gathering. You have the crowds chanting in lieu of the hymns. You have the program bulletin in lieu of the church bulletin. You have the doxology as a goal goes in. And then you have the congregants going away at the end of the match to talk about the match all week. And then there is the fact that the exchange is ethical, verses 26 to 27. Instead of longing after God, his character, they hankered after impurity, unnatural sex. And so God is revealing his wrath to man. Twice Paul says, God gave man up, verses 14 and 26. In other words, God says to people who are yearning and hankering after sin in their own way, he says, okay, you can have your sin, you can have your own way. It reminds me of Psalm 106 verse 15. God granted them the request but sent leanness to their souls. And so you have all these people in the modern world walking around with what they want and utterly miserable as sin. God is revealing not only his wrath to man but his wrath in man. The punishment is the sin itself, but they feel the due penalty in themselves. And so we cast our minds back to 1980 and how the AIDS epidemic spread. It was God speaking to man saying, will you yet return to me? But then you see, well, all the money got poured in, and I'm not saying it's wrong. All the money got poured into finding a solution for AIDS, and we came up with antiretroviral drugs. And so somebody who's living their life contrary to the will of God now gets to live not simply two years, but they may live as much as 10 years. And so, well, I don't need to repent because, you see, I can have my lifestyle and I can have my safety. And so we're still not repenting for the way in which we have gone against the will of God. And so phase four, the denial of the truth, verses 28 to 32. 
having suppressed and exchanged the truth, try to get rid of the truth. The last phase is this, and we're at this phase. Heaven forbid, if heaven exists, heaven forbid that we should let the truth back in. We spent these two centuries double-barreled, attacking God, attacking his revelation, and still these Christians won't go away. Still they won't submit. Going back to our trip out west, I'm sure I'm not alone in noticing this. You go from one board to the next, whether it be the rock formations, whether it be the dinosaur quarry. Have you noticed that every board has to say how many millions of years old this is without any evidence? It's like, okay, I got it on the first board. You want me to believe that this is millions of years old. But every board, millions of years, and they even differentiate between how many millions of years, how many millions of years. Okay, 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 I get the point. You want me to believe it's all millions of years old. Why? Because they don't want the truth coming back in. They've spent centuries trying to eradicate the truth. And what's the result? What's the fruit of all this? There are three results. First of all, verses 29 to 31. Unrighteousness spreads. Notice what Paul says here. He talks of all manner of unrighteousness. It seemed that unrighteousness spread. And finally, society turns to unnatural sex. Yet in the order in which Paul explains things, it seems to be that a pocket of outright rebellion existed, but then it resulted in the corroding of the conduct of all society. And so verse 29, sins of action. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Verse 30, sins of speech. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Sins of heart and mind, verse 31. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Unrighteousness spreading throughout all society. The increase of suicide, violence. The rise of racial tensions once more. The loss of civility. And not only does it spread, but you notice also in verse 29 that unrighteousness surges. It's not simply that unrighteousness is spreading out this way, but it's also surging, it's filling us within. Pushing out common decency, reminding us of Noah's day that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually, Genesis 6, 5. And then thirdly, trying to keep the truth out, unrighteousness sanctions. It gives approval to sinful actions. Notice how the chapter ends, though... They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So evil becomes good, and good becomes evil. But you notice this, that man cannot claim ignorance, for God never so lets man. He he does not so give up on man the man ceases to know either God or the sentence of death for sin. God's decree that those who practice and approve the sins of godlessness and unrighteousness deserve to die is known in the mind and heart of the unbeliever. They know what they are doing. And so what's the point? Well, the point is this. The West has fallen. Clearly, the West has fallen. So bear with me, because we cannot surely end this sermon on such a note. Wherein lies our hope? Well, Paul shows us that our hope, first of all, is found in God. He's trusting that God's revelation of his wrath will be divinely used to turn men back to God. And faced with the lies and the immoral chaos, they begin to doubt their doubts about God's truth. And we may well be beginning to see some of that happening. One of the most famous atheists of the 20th century, Anthony Flew, 
towards the end of his life, wrote a book saying how he'd given up on his atheism. That does not mean to say that he became a Christian, but he understood that it's not futile, it's not foolish to believe in God. There is sufficient evidence to, to suggest that a God exists. And then A.N. Wilson, who wrote the book God's Funeral, who said he didn't see sufficient of the gospel in the lives of Christians for his middle years gave up on Christianity. And during that phase, he wrote a book analyzing how we got to the situation in which we're in today. And he's quite scathing. He's quite belittling at places. But lo and behold, now he's written the book, published the book. He's now come back to the faith of his former years. I'm not saying God alone knows those who are his. I'm not affirming his creed necessarily so. But there is a wind of change in the air. And then you see in the entertainment news and you see um, actors like Anthony Hopkins who once claimed to be atheists saying, I believe there is a God. Because they are saying, if this is the fruit of what it means to say there is no God and we've been left to ourselves as we have desired, then it's hardly working out a stellar success. Our hope is found in God. Secondly, our hope is found in grace. Paul writes to the Romans to show, given the state of affairs, he's not going to hang out in a Christian ghetto in Antioch. He's been sent out by the church, along with Barnabas initially, and then Silas on the second missionary journey. And he says there's a gospel to get out there. Having spread the gospel through the east of the empire, now he's taking it to Spain. He understands, and this is important, that while there's a place for the law of God in restraining sin, it is only the grace of God which can transform man. What did John say in his prologue to John's gospel? The law came through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. And yes... We can strike the seed of religion in the thinking of men and women by talking about the law of God. It has a role. I believe in the law of God. It is not ultimately the law of God that we preach. It is the grace of God and the truth of God which converts a man. Vengeance belongs to God. What man needs is to know that there is a way back from the mayhem that he's created for himself. It's found in God's righteousness. It reveals the character of God. It reveals that the cross, to uphold righteousness, the penalty for our sins fell upon the Savior. And those who trust in the Savior have reckoned to their account the perfect righteousness of Christ, whereby we can manifest God in his glory in this chaotic situation in which we find ourselves. But are we ready? Are we ready to promote the grace of God? When a transvestite walks into little farms, have we got our approach ready? When somebody who's had a sex change walks into little farms, do we know what we're going to do? And we could give a whole array of examples. You see, it's one thing for us to sing in the pews, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. But what about the other wretch? Will we be singing amazing grace then? When it comes to dealing with the complications, the messes of the world as it is, walking in through the doors of little farms. Or will we say, well, actually, I've been singing Amazing Grace, but I think there's something special about me. I think I have a leg up when it comes to the gospel, because I was clean to begin with. No, we weren't. No, we weren't. You listen to the list there. It's not only egregious sins, it's also so-called respectable sins, which manifest the world in the state it's in. So we better believe in the grace of God. Or shut our doors. Because if we don't believe in the grace of God for others as well as for ourselves, then we've lost the purpose for which these doors are open. And then thirdly, our hope is found in grit. 
something that's often missed when we come back to the central theme of Romans in verses 16 and 17, that having believed upon the name of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, we then live by faith. Isn't this why Pastor Bob ends the services each Sunday? Go and live. It's not simply that we believe by the grace of God in Christ, but we go and live out the faith. And these people did exactly that. And what happened? Ten successive great persecutions before these Judaic Christian principles, which we have let slide, were established in the Roman Empire. And so what's Paul's message as he tries to get these Romans equipped for the gospel going to Spain? He's telling them, in effect, to get over themselves. You can hide away in a ghetto, he says to them, in effect, but they'll still come after you. So you have to make up your mind. Are you going to hide away in the ghetto, claiming in private that you're a Christian? Or are you going to come out of the ghetto and say, this is where I stand. I can do no other. This is where I stand. I can do no other. What is living by faith? Living by faith is living a consistent life. It's living a public life. It's living a vibrant life. Let me close with a quote from an unusual source. The film Casablanca. Sometimes when I'm working on stuff that I know what I'm doing, editing or stuff, I have a film on in the background and I know the story. It's just there for... So I'm just not left to me and my own thoughts. Casablanca comes to an end. And those of you who've seen the black and white film will know the story about Victor Laszlo, uh, the resistance against the Nazis, and Rick Blaine. And they've got this tension going on over Ilsa in the, in the middle. And Rick finally comes to the conclusion he's got to give up on the girl. He's got to do what's best for the situation in which they find themselves. And this is how he speaks. I'm no good at being noble. But it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you will understand that. And I thought, isn't that true for the need of the Christian church today? There is a sense in which we need to get over ourselves. We're meant to be living as those who have died to self. Stop playing it safe. Yes, we operate out of the spirit, not out of the flesh. But we stop playing itself. Doesn't take much to see. Problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. You know, we have a greater purpose for which we live. It is to glorify, to honor God, to be faithful to the truth as it has been revealed in Scripture and as it is revealed in creation. And the amazing thing is this, and I've seen this. You plant your feet on the existence of God. You plant your feet on the trustworthiness of biblical revelation. And to see people who are adamant that God does not exist gradually move their ground and start presupposing that God does exist. And say to them, I thought you didn't believe in God. <laughs> but you've moved your ground. And how did they move the ground? By striking the seed of religion that they have in their head that God exists. May God be praised. His church will ever be in existence. And he will get the glory. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We praise you, O God, that even in our own day with so much confusion, so much fake that it speaks truth into us and we recognize the truth by the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Help us to hide your word in our hearts that we don't sin against you. And help us to go in the power of your Spirit to live for you in the great and awesome name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We pray these things. Amen.
Let us sing to close 186, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord. Let us sing out to the glory of God, and may this be our conviction as we go into a new week. I'm not ashamed to own my Lord. Our benediction this morning comes from the end of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.